0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Teach Write, the podcast for first-time instructors, experienced instructors, and anyone else interested in learning how to teach writing. I'm Daniel Anderson, and we're coming to you from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I have three guests with me today, and I'll go ahead and allow them to introduce themselves. Hi,
1: everyone. I'm Jenny, and I'm a first-year PhD student at UNC. Hi, I'm Krista.
2: I'm also a first-year student here at UNC, and this is my first time teaching.
3: Hi, my name is Brendan. I'm a second-year PhD student here at UNC, and it is my first year teaching.
0: Fantastic. So we are going to talk about a couple of aspects of teaching. One has to do with accommodation in the classroom, and another has to do with uh, design of the syllabus. And then we also want to think about research as a genre that shows up in composition classrooms. So the first thing I thought we could talk about the accommodation issues that sometimes play out when we're thinking about the classroom and whether or not the definition of rigor is something that we need to pay attention to. One of the concerns raised in the article by Anne-Marie Womack The article wasn't saying this, but one of the concerns about granting accommodations is they come at the expense of rigor. What do you all make of that concern?
3: My concern within the article itself was less about rigor in the sense of... um, a kind of class pace and more in the sense of, of rigorous in kind of classroom expectations. Part of what WMAC is talking about is is shifting the rhetoric of the the syllabus primarily, but, but really any sort of course policy um, from something like, say, you must complete late work to earn this many points to feel free to complete this much late work for this many points, um, which is kind of shifting the agency onto the student. And I understand the rhetorical impulse there, but what... Concerns me is whether that sets up an unrealistic expectation moving forward for the student in the university where uh, not only will these policies not always be in effect, but they do change at the discretion of the instructor um, and placing that agency on the student as the the kind of operator of these policies um, worries me in thinking about them moving forward and potentially trying to take that with them outside of the classroom.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, Brennan. I think um, that her point about rigor not necessarily going away when we make accommodations was really, really important and something that I completely agreed with, like accommodating students doesn't have to mean that the course becomes less rigorous or that the material becomes less intellectually stimulating or challenging, but I do agree with you. I think that some of her suggestions um, were... Things that I wondered about, um, about, you know, whether they were problematic. I think trying to recall some specific examples, the one um, where she allows students to, I think, pick their own grading scheme or like weight assignments differently. As a first year instructor, I just kind of thought, wow. I would feel so overwhelmed, um, like having kind of each student using different a different grading scheme. And then I wondered, well, does that mean that I'm not being accommodating by not having that as a part of my syllabus? Um, and I don't think that's the case, but there were some suggestions that she made that I thought might kind of set an unrealistic expectations for an unrealistic expectation, excuse me, for students kind of moving from class to class and from department to department. So I agree with you.
2: Yeah, I agree with what Jenny just said. I think a suggestion that I had liked was the time bank where they could um, turn in an assignment like two days late. For They had like passes they could use. And I've, I had that experience in undergrad where we were allowed to turn in one assignment two days late, one assignment one week late. And I mean, late is not the right language here, but um, kind of yeah. just some freedom with, I think, deadlines. Um, I would say this is such a different conversation talking about a first year writing classroom than it would be talking about like a math or um, classroom where there's like time tests. I think um, most when we think of accommodations, we think of people needing extra time. Mm -hmm. And so I think we can move our deadlines around. But I appreciated this article's, um, some of the creative suggestions, because it's tricky to think about how can we accommodate students when it comes to writing. But I think deadlines is one space. I'd be interested in thinking of others. But I think that was the one that stood out as very applicable to me as well.
0: Yeah, I like how you're uh, pointing out the unique context of uh, writing instruction, and the deadlines, I think, maybe are more important, or we have to pay attention to deadlines a little bit if we want to honor the tenant that writing is a process. So, you know, ideally what's happening in a writing classroom is an orchestration of a lot of activities that kind of need to happen with some timing, so I don't know, you know, if if uh, this flexibility at some point thwarts the process. If you all think,
2: I'll speak right on that. Um, I think something that was helpful for me is just. This is not, I guess this isn't so much on the topic of accommodation, but um, it, having a very practical reason behind the deadlines. So mm-hmm. my first project is kind of based around a publication. So they understand that this has to be done in order to send it to kind of the editor at that point. Um, so I, I, and then I try to build in, of course, draft time and, and just, you know, make the process really intentional. And um, I, we have debates, I think, a lot about sh- how structured to be in this kind of a course. I... Um, lean to the side of more structured. But I think I, my hope is that having multiple smaller due dates will make the big one feel less daunting and give students of different learning abilities and styles time and to move things around leading up to the due date that really is very practical, as in you have to have this turned into the editor at this point. But I know I that's one way that I'm thinking about it.
3: I think this concept of intention is really important in thinking about accommodation. I mean, the article ends in what I think is a very True point, in the sense that yeah, you all of the designing you do is never going to. At the end of the day, it's it's a negotiation within the classroom um, for what accommodations look like for you and for your students. And I think that's especially true in the sense of like it depends on the intentions you're setting for what your classroom is and what your class is. Um, Oftentimes, the the kind of rhetoric that Womack implies in this article reads as something that is not what I'm interested in teaching my students. The concepts of of users or these things that come from like, or at least are very often associated with like kind of corporate HR speak, um, is not something I'm looking for. I'm looking for like a very, the intention of my classroom is very personal and is very much about like kind of developing a voice and things of that nature. So. Certain of the, the accommodations suggested that are, are often rhetorical shifts without any changing any like nature of due dates or nature of anything, just kind of rhetorical shifts in the, in the language of the classroom. Um, I can understand the, the impetus for such shifts, but they're not shifts that reflect what my classroom looks like. Um, and so I think that at the end of the day, it does always come down to the conclusion that it is a negotiation within the classroom, um, of, of what these kinds of things look like.
1: Yeah. Dan, this is a little bit tangentially related. Um, but one thing that I thought was interesting about Womack's articles, the way that she weaves in syllabus design into kind of her argument and Brennan related to what you were just saying, you know things that we can do as instructors to make um, our courses more accessible without necessarily changing like the fundamental design or um, unit plans that we have in place set for the course. One thing that she talked about was just like making your syllabus more appealing. And as a new instructor, a first-time instructor, that's something that I didn't feel super equipped to do right off the bat just because I'd never built a syllabus before. But one small thing that I tried to do um, was like use font that wasn't, you know, Times New Roman or Arial, like make it a little bit visually different. Also having it as kind of an evolving document in a Word doc or not a Word doc, excuse me, but a Google doc. Um, So as opposed to a Word doc that lives on my computer that only I have access to, the Google doc is something that students can see as I make changes to the syllabus throughout the semester or, you know, have a little bit more flexibility in editing text size, things like that. So that's just one other thing I wanted to mention that your comment about, you know, accommodating without changing the fundamental structure of the course reminded me of.
0: The syllabus, I think, is a really rich topic in many ways, and I I appreciate that. I have a little bit of a concern in that, you know, when you make a syllabus for the first time, you go through the motions and you, I think, keep it reasonably standardized. You probably don't do these kind of out-of-the-box things quite as much. And then there's this tendency in teaching to repurpose materials. So if your very first syllabus is really boilerplatey then it's likely that the next semester you take that syllabus you open it and you revise it so i'm wondering if it you know if we really buy into the idea that the syllabus is a lens for a different mode of teaching that an introduction to teaching orientation or course should really push on that idea and ask new instructors to make a syllabus that isn't boilerplate
3: well i wonder if if not being asked, at least establish it as an option. I still think about pretty similar to my last point in terms of the syllabus as a reflection of the way and values of the classroom itself and the class process itself. Um, I, I think about my undergrad experience where I often had access to syllabi before registering for classes. And oftentimes that was a, a huge determination of what I would end up taking is what these syllabus look like. They were they were an experience of the professor before I ever got to meet them, um, and I was thinking about this in terms of reading Womack's article because I, I very purposefully kept my syllabus very boilerplate, very purposefully kept my syllabus looking a certain way with certain expectations um, and structured in a way that that I think made sense, but but read like a syllabus and read like a document, um, because I was thinking about my myself as an undergrad and looking at the the example syllabus provided in the article and thinking about how I wouldn't. Steer anywhere near that class, um, just because it wasn't what I was looking for in terms of in terms of a, a student and an, a student experience. So I was thinking about less about less about encouraging as much as a, uh, allowing for these kind of rhetorical choices. Which Womack well, is very clear that these are that there's there's a rhetoric that goes into this into this design or into into any design of class policy of syllabus of of what have you and and. The kind of traditional choice has, has its values as well, I think.
0: So one of the points that's made in the piece is that the contractual language that shows up in syllabi is the result of a breakdown of trust. I found that quote pretty interesting that, you know, there's a trust issue involved with how these syllabuses are, are put together. And all of this deep contract language has to do with lack of trust. Can you all speak to that a little bit? What, how, how rhetorical are these syllabi when students encounter them and, and, you know, how do they relate to the dynamic of the classroom itself?
2: I was thinking about that a lot when I was reading this article because my immediate reaction to, I mean, I think Womack's recommendation to make it more of a negotiation was like, well, if that language isn't in the syllabus about this policy, then I can't maybe take away late points for a student who is deliberately just not turning in their work. I can't do these things if they're not in writing. But then, yes, it comes across as feeling very strict and not as much like a negotiation. I think it was helpful to think about the syllabi as a genre and thinking about what are they trying to accomplish. Um, And I liked kind of the idea of moving it toward a contract that we decide together. And I guess my brain went to thinking about what we would call, I think, syllabus week. And we don't do much during syllabus week. We kind of give them the syllabus and waste usually, and waste maybe isn't the right word, but we um, spend a whole class period just looking at it. And I was just thinking about, I'm sure there's a more creative way to kind of make use of that week that would allow us to maybe further develop a syllabus together Um some sort of language. I think I think that week was a space that I was thinking of in terms of applying some of Womack's suggestions. But yes, I had that. I had that immediate reaction of being afraid of like, if I take this language out, a student will maybe break my trust and I won't be able to do anything about it. That was, yeah, something that I was thinking about. Yeah.
0: So what, what would that look like? a Collaborative syllabus writing session with students, if students can do some of the work that's being called for here?
1: I think maybe having some different um, course policies that you examine together and come up with different different um, ways of approaching could be a good idea. So maybe having like the syllabus primarily built, but working with students to come up with a late work policy, something that's fair for everyone so that the students who are turning things in on time or early every time feel like the policy is fair. And so do the students who are going to be turning things in late. Um, maybe even like an attendance policy coming up with something that everyone feels like is fair. So that way you're not having to like build your syllabus during syllabus week. You kind of have it built, but you maybe have some um, gaps to fill with students. Just, And I think that that could be important too for just helping students to feel like they have a voice in the class um, right off the bat. And also an opportunity for instructors to establish authority too. If If a student proposes something that is maybe too flexible, you could say, you know, I don't think that will work, but what about this? Or how could we kind of come come to a a, a mutual agreement about what a good policy would be?
0: Yeah, kind of negotiation. Right. And WOMAC, I think, links that to motivation in, in some ways as well, that were this to happen, the students might have more invest investment in a class, potentially. One final thing about this before we move on to the next piece is there's a continuum in some ways uh, between class management and class content that's referenced in the article. And these things like deadlines are typically thought of as class management items. Uh, But the question I think, you know, under discussion is when do those shade into the content of the class? And this kind of negotiated activity you're describing feels more like class activity, class content. So is that distinction between class management and class content of use or where does it break down?
1: That's obviously a really good question because we're all thinking about it. I mean I think that um, I don't know where my mind went Dan when you asked that question is like the way that you manage the class doesn't necessarily have to have like a direct impact on your course content but I do think it can hand it can shape the way, that students kind of view assignments and view like, you know, learn the material if they feel um, like valued and respected as members of the class, as people worth having a say in how policies are established. It could influence, I don't know, kind of the work that they put into unit assignments and feeders and things like that. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think about like, actually shaping like the content of like the units.
3: Interesting, I was thinking about it as I tend to be pretty fond of the class, di- of the distinction between content and kind of management or structure, mm-hmm. um, especially in terms of, of, again, the kind of role in the classroom. Um, I do think it's a good segue into thinking about like, I don't know, rhetorical genres and thinking about and I know in my classroom, I try to give students a lot of freedom in terms of what genre they're writing in. Like we don't we don't specify exact like um, rhetorical charts for each project that's due. We we do a lot of kind of different um, investigations into different genres that are that are affiliated with, say, the natural sciences or social sciences. And then students can kind of ride lines. Um, I think it's Partially in avoiding a kind of, um, the idea of just uh, fulfilling a role in the class, yeah. Of, of, yeah. of seeing things as policies that are to be determined. And so that's kind of what I'm thinking about in terms of keeping the first thoughts about keeping class management and class content separate, is I wonder if if students get really involved in classroom management um, in terms of thinking about things as assignments or as things to be completed or as like kind of policies that are structured in the air as opposed to just like things to do, if that kind of um almost like managerial take on the classroom will at any point affect their understanding of content and also thinking about it from a kind of like negotiation or managerial standpoint as opposed to something a little more like a student or like a i don't know a a writer in a more kind of expressivist sense
0: yeah so that piece we were talking about is teaching as accommodation, designing composition classrooms and syllabi, uh, by Anne Marie Womack. We also read the piece. Let me um, by Blythe and Gonzalez, um, which is I'm trying I'm blanking on the name, something and transfer across the meta genre of research. <laughs> Yeah. Does anyone remember what the first part was? I think it's
1: coordination. Coor- coordination, coordination and transfer.
0: Coordination and transfer across the meta-genre of research. T- tell me your thoughts on this. What what should listeners know about that article?
1: This is something that we were enjoying talking about, kind of like is, you know, a little bit earlier in class, before we started recording the podcast, we yeah, we were all equally, I think, fascinated but troubled by What the scholars in this article found is they use screencasting videos to track students' um, writing processes for this course, I believe, in the natural sciences. Um, And we were reflecting on kind of the universal problem that I think professors face when it comes to having students Feel This kind of extreme anxiety and concern about making the professor happy, which I think is something that we've all experienced and to a degree probably still experience. But as instructors, it's something that we want to kind of discourage. Um, we want our students to, to, you know, follow guidelines and things of that nature. But um the way that these students were using sources rhetorically, while on the one hand it was really impressive, it also we thought kind of indicated a larger problem um, that we've all both experienced and um, are like seeing happen with our students where they're just really trying to, to please us and get a good grade.
3: Trying to fulfill the checklist of good grade. Yeah. Um, There was, I, I remember an example from the article of, of, Um, students doing research uh, as you were mentioning um, not to understand any sort of argument but understanding the kind of uh, rhetorical effect that article would have on their professor they had no interest in understanding any sort of any sort of argument as much as as kind of um, building the correct genre making it look right in terms of getting a grade um, which I do think is a problem that that we are constantly facing and are, I I know at least for me in terms of teaching writing for the first time like running into for the first time um, how easily that uh, an assignment can slip into yeah. a fulfillment of a checklist.
2: Yeah I think an example of that that really stood out to me from this study was the student who wrote their paper I think quicker than the others and was asked like oh why did you not toggle back and forth between tabs as frequently and she was like I outline a lot and she explained that she had to submit an outline for this class, so she submitted that, and then she made her own. That was completely different than the one that she had to submit, and I think that resonated with me because I was a student who would create a different outline to submit to make the teacher happy and then make one according to my style, and that troubled me because I'm like, as a professor, how do I not create an assignment that they feel like they have to be somebody else or do some other sort of work and turn it in and it's not authentic to them. I think the topic of authentic assignments um, was something that this article brought up for me. But yeah, that was like, that was me. How do I not be the teacher that requires students to do work twice, once for me and once in a way that resonates with them?
0: Yeah, these are all really concerning, um, I don't know, observations from the article. It might be helpful for listeners to know that the genre of pieces that these students were writing was the research from sources article, which is pretty traditional uh, secondary research driven piece. So I'm wondering if genres are a potential, not a workaround, but a way to ameliorate this challenge. Are there some writing projects that might you know, be less prone to this kind of expectation filling?
3: I know that in terms of... So this was a natural science course that was a, a, a research-driven article, but also an opinion article, um, right? There was the, the student who... Um, oh, if I remember correctly, it's, it's the use of a certain chemical in the treatment of malaria that has certain environmental effects and for, a, for like a large-scale biology course. Um, and there was an international student who had a certain opinion of this situation but instead was writing an essay from uh, what they called the, the U.S. opinion. Um, I, so while understanding the argument, still choosing to present the one that, that they thought was what was required. Um, so I do think that genres – as we get further and further into understanding genres, they also um, give students that kind of checklist of things to fulfill. They also understand not only the way that they're structured, but the way that they can kind of be filled in or the way that the outcomes that they receive. Um, I know that in terms of my first unit project, which was natural sciences, um, we ended doing we ended up doing a public writing article, um, partially because the genre is not super specific. It's not something that can be can be one to one to one. Can be filled out in a perfect flowchart. Um, and we read like a wide variety of of different articles um, in different styles of this writing: a, a blog post, an Atlantic article, um, one in the Baffler, all over the place. Um, with the kind of impetus of of not allowing students of of formula to follow as much as an understanding of genre conventions, why they're there and then being able to kind of pick and choose and kind of develop their own. Um, And so I do think that to a certain point the understanding of of genres can be uh, a, a kind of way out, like an easy way out in terms of writing.
1: One thing we were talking about earlier before we started recording is kind of the importance of genre awareness, but also the ability to or having the intention of kind of letting students genre bend a little bit and kind of like have that authority to know, you know, what genres are, but also, yeah, like messing with them a little bit, blurring the boundaries between certain genres Um yeah, I mean, something I think if we had more time, we could talk about would be like patch writing, and I found that to be um, like really problematic the way that the students were going about it. But yet again, I think just another way that students are kind of often trying to replicate what they see online to or in another text um, to receive their instructor's approval or to kind of get a get a good grade. Um, but yeah, I think that's something. I know I want to think more about as I continue teaching.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, something this might be off topic, but something that I've been thinking about and more of a personal goal of mine is to kind of resist that urge to give them an answer or to immediately va- evaluate them on the spot. If they come to you and they say, is this right? My mm-hmm. urge is to jump in and say, oh yes, for this reason. Um, so I think helpful for me has been starting with my unit project being um, a Carolina scientific article, which is published by an organization on UNC's campus and read and produced for undergraduates. So I'm constantly reminding them, you are the readership for this. You decide if this is effective. You decide if you would read this. Um, so trying to kind of resist my urge to answer them and encourage them to evaluate for themselves. I don't know how related to kind of genre awareness that is, but I think giving them the power, I think, and showing them that they have it to be able to evaluate and understand a source and recreate it and, yet yeah, checking in with themselves rather than immediately coming to me as a strategy I've been thinking of.
0: We're running short on time, but let's take up one more aspect of this piece, which was um, the, I'm going to call it the high school hangover. It (laughs) seemed like the piece was talking about a lot of students come in and they're using their um, capacities that they developed in high school and essentially uh, building on them, their foundation. And what does that say for the first year writing course then if high school is already sort of like this foundational piece? Um, I think a lot of first-year writing programs are conceptualized as new information. This is going to train you to do this college-level work, at least for this group of—and it was only 12 students, so we have to have a caveat in the conclusions that we draw a little Um, bit—but, you know, how do we understand the first-year writing course then based on this observation that they had of students really kind of hanging on to their high school experience?
2: I mean, it had me asking whether we're being disruptive enough because I think I do have all my students. Most of my students come in and say I loved my high school experience, mm-hmm. and instead of that kind of sparking excitement for this course, I think it sparks resistance to it. So, how to address them where they are, especially in those early weeks of the course. And I don't, I don't really have an answer to this, but I was my questions. You know, are we being disruptive enough? Are we? Are we articulating the purpose of the course clearly enough to them? How do we show them that? How do we build on their high school experience, but show them that there is more to learn? I think that was my biggest question is how do we show that there is more to learn and kind of get over that resistance and kind of, I don't want to call it overconfidence, but there's certainly a strong degree of confidence that I think actually is inhibiting some learning in the course.
3: I was interested in this transition into the course. And what it resulted in for me was was, uh, the second day of class leading a discussion, essentially, of a a reading of a public science article um, before introducing any sort of concepts or before introducing... the rhetorical triangle or, or genre or any of these things um, and working our way kind of naturally through conversation with everyone to like a, a fleshed out understanding of these things within the article and then moving into to a kind of uh, like mini lecture introduction to these concepts being like you already have an understanding of the way that these manifest in writing. Um, you have an understanding of the way that these affect you. Um, we are trying to kind of delineate break those down, and build upon those conceptions um, that you clearly have already had. Um, I don't know if it was perfectly uh, helpful or accomplishing that task, but I wanted to, I've been thinking about the strategy of, of what is the first thing that we do, of what is the transition into this course and and how is it framed in that way?
1: Yeah, Brennan, I like thinking about um, this course as a way to kind of build on and complicate things that students started to learn in high school and just building on those skills um, that they're already coming in with. Um, And I think one thing that we've been talking about kind of like messing with structure a little bit um, is one kind of way of going about that. Students have been shocked to find out that I don't care what font they use (laughs) um or like that i don't have a strict word count or that they can use i and me in their writing things that they were kind of prescribed from doing um, in high schools i think that there are both ways of kind of complicating um, what they already know, building on what they learned as high school students, and also just kind of introducing a new kind of dynamic between student instructor and kind of expectations for academic and scholarly writing, just more generally.
0: Yeah, lots, lots to think about. Well, uh, thank you very much for the conversation. This has been really enjoyable. Uh, once again, we are here with Jenny, Krista, and Brennan. And I hope all of our listeners will tune in again next time for another episode of Teach Right. Thanks, everybody.